If you found your way back to your seat, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tonight. We'll pick back up uh, in the middle of chapter 3 where we left off last week. Uh, I'll say this in preface of tonight's message, uh, much like last week's and some others that will be in this text. Uh, this really, 1 Corinthians, uh, more than any other New Testament book, um, it's really inseparable from the context of the local church. Um, of course, uh, the, the name 1 Corinthians tells us that it was written to a church in the first century. Uh, Corinth, Corinth was a city. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, but just like any of the New Testament letters, uh, Ephesus, Colossians, Galatians, uh, or Philippians, all of those letters are named after not people, but churches, congregations. So it's impossible to separate any of these letters from churches, which of course, I preface this because we're here tonight on a Wednesday night. If there are any people in the world that value the local church, it's you all. If there are any people in, in, in the world, in America right now, that value the local church, it's you all. So a lot of what we've been talking about and a lot of what we will talk about talk about will be the old saying, preaching to the choir. Uh, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean we're just going to skip through a chapter of the Bible that already confirms what we know. Uh, that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't read it and study it and, and learn about it. Uh, a lot of what we talk about tonight, I'm sure a lot of you already know. You already uh, amen in advance, and you, uh, you, you probably learned a long time ago. And if that's the case, that's great. But if, if tonight has any potential for all of us as, as Wednesday night devoted church uh, attendees, I think it can strengthen our biblical convictions about things. Um, as a pastor, I don't ever assume that people already know certain things, even if they are traditional things. I don't ever assume that people have already learned that or know that, uh, if the Bible is wanting to teach us that, because I think all of us, at times, we often ground our our faith in what we've heard people say, uh, but maybe we haven't seen it for ourselves in the Bible. Uh, so as a pastor, I don't want you walking out of here anytime saying, well, pastor said this and the pastor taught that and did you hear that one thing that he said that rhymed one time I hope that stuff helps you but my goal is that you leave saying God says this right and, and my word is by no means at anywhere close to God's but what my words are hopefully and, and by my own efforts uh, they always I always aspire them to be my words are mere reflections of what God has already said so I hope that you can leave here tonight with some biblical clarifications and convictions about things things you maybe already knew and believed, and maybe you knew they were from this chapter, but if you didn't, now you can go to your coworker, to your friend, to your, to, to your neighbor, somebody that maybe doesn't believe like you believe, and maybe for a long time, they've just thought, well, that's how they are, you are, and this is how I am, but now next time you talk to them, you can say, well, listen, this is God's word. I don't just do this because I, I feel like I'm supposed to, or I was told to, or because my mama did, or my dad did. I do this because God's word says that we all should. So again, if we go over some things tonight that are, that are kind of like, well, yeah, I'm here. I already believe that. I hope that's confirmation for you that you are doing the right thing, but also uh, you're not doing it for me or you're not doing it for, for, because I'm preaching this. You're doing this for each other and you're doing this for the Lord above. So uh, again, it's impossible to separate 1 Corinthians from the local church context. And maybe uh, our, our, our text tonight from chapter three, verse 16 through chapter four, perhaps this is exhibit A for how essential the local church is in a Christian's 
life. And there's a lot of passages that make it that essential. But tonight, it's really hard to separate the two. Uh, So Paul has been addressing the matter of spiritual immaturity throughout the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Uh, remember back in chapter one, he said, I've got a lot of things I gotta talk to y'all about. There's a lot of things that are concerning me, but before he gets into those other spiritual issues, and if you're ready for more than just the, the conversation we've had kind of for the last four weeks, come back next week, because we're gonna get into some weird, uh, not, in, not in a funny way, but in a just heartbreaking way some immorality that was going on at Corinth that isn't too far-fetched in today's world but back then you would have thought how in the world Uh, so if you want more than just what we've been talking about come back next week we're going to get into some really uh really important conversations about morals but uh before Paul deals with those issues uh he's been talking about uh about the importance of the local church insofar that it equips us to that Just hit the space bar or hit the mouse pad, the mouse, it should go. The importance of the local church equipping us for our new and better resurrected life. So he's been talking about uh, how we play a role and how we fit into the local church and how it's essential that all of us understand our role so that we might be equipped to serve the Lord and, and that new, uh, the new life that he's given us. And, and back in chapter three, uh, last week's message, he talked about how our faith is but the foundation. Uh, for the new creation that God is building within us. Uh, you, you can recall verses nine and 10, where Paul says that we are God fellows work, God's fellow workers. You are God's field and you are God's building. Now he's talking to the plural, he's talking to the church family. But then he, in verse 10, he says this, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. So he's talking to individually that how we build on our faith uh, is, is an important thing to, to consider. And, and we'll talk about that for just a few minutes here. Each of us are responsible and accountable for how we build on our foundation, how we grow our faith. Of course, God is working to sovereignly grow our faith, but we are responsible to respond and react according to the grace and truth that he's given to each of us. He's gonna shift back to talking to the whole congregation where we're gonna pick back up on. And that distinction is essential so that we'll understand the text properly. He addresses us individually though first, pressing our personal responsibility and, and remember last week, he alerts our senses to this by talking about eternity. Remember from verse 11 through 15, he talks about how we are gonna stand before the Lord and give an account for what we did with this life and how we serve God as individuals, how we built on our foundation as a believer. But Paul kind of does it opposite of what you would think. Rather than talking about the earthly, uh, what's earthly at stake first and then what's at stake in heaven, he refers to our eternal judgment first and then he's gonna shift back to talk about what's at stake here and now. And, and we'll see that in just a few minutes. So that's gonna kind of get back to the overall message of the letter uh, about how we play an important role, a pivotal role each of us individually contribute to the whole. Remember back in chapter one, it's all about the how we individually contribute to the whole body. 
Now, Paul makes it clear that some of our deeds will pay eternal dividends. Some of, us, some of our deeds will be eternally costly. But in the here and now, the same sentiment is true. As much pressure as he places on us in, say, verse 15, when he says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet through fire, he gives us that ambiguous reference to what happens on Judgment Day to Christians that there will be some eternal consequences for wasted opportunities that we, that we, had, that we didn't take advantage of in this life. He brings the same amount of pressure to the here and now in verse 16. As we read this verse, and as we read this verse, we've got to pay attention to something. So I want to read it, and then I want to make sure we understand what it's saying and what it's not saying. So now he, he just referred to in heaven, and now he's going to bring it back to earth. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, I want to make a distinction here. Earlier in the book, remember, I, I told you that sometimes in the New Testament, when you see the word you, you have to use context to determine if it's referring to you individually or you all, y'all, plurally. Because sometimes you can refer to the individual and sometimes you can refer to the whole, right? Now, we in the South fix that problem because we just say y'all, but and if you look at proper English, right, there's, there, there's me and then there's you, there's you in, in the second person. But in the second person plural, it's the same word. It's, it's you. Of course, you can say you all, but that's, again, not how properly English should be, uh, should be understood. It's very important here because in verse 10, there's no question. Paul's referring to individuals, right? What does he say? Let each one take heed how he or she builds. But in verse 16, it might not be as clear. Now, thankfully, the, the Greek text makes it very clear, uh, and it makes the passage make much more sense. Now, you can take this verse and quote it out of context, and, and it carries a powerful message regardless, but since we're in the text and we want to be faithful to the text, it's important that we understand that what this verse is actually saying. So, let me put this in, in a little bit better understanding for us. Y'all are the temple of God. So who, who's he talking to in this whole book? The church. He says, church, y'all, we are the dwelling place of God. The spirit dwells in y'all's midst. Now, the reason why I think this is very important, because later in 1 Corinthians, he does refer to our individual bodies as being temples and says what you put into your bodies and what you do with your bodies matters in terms of, hey, God dwells in you. Don't, don't disrespect God with the, what you do with your body and who you, you know, how you use your body and who you join your body with. But in this context, he's talking to y'all, to us. In this passage, here's what he's saying, and it's so key that we, that we hear this. All of our, that we take, it's important that we take our individual participation seriously and sacredly. The alternative to building up the body is to disregard it or worse, destroy it. 
Now, what's his whole message been about so far in 1 Corinthians? That we are a part of the body of Christ. And he says, do you not know that you, you all, y'all are the temple of God? Y'all are the dwelling place of God? Y'all are where the spirit of God dwells? That the body of Christ is the new and better temple of God, not made with hands, but made with bodies of believers in whom the Spirit dwells, in whom the Spirit brings and joins together in our individual participation. So back at the, so if you frame this whole chapter, he talks about our judgment before God and he says your individual judgment is reflective of how you participated as a member of the body of Christ. And the alternative to building up the body is to either disregard it or worse, destroy it. Look at verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. I don't have to explain the word destroy to you. It means destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you all are. Now, let me make this clear, and you already agree with me, but I think this is important to hear. You cannot read this passage and take away a casual, optional understanding of church participation, church affiliation. And I don't mean membership as in rigid, you know, on the roll. I mean, hey, I'm a part of the body. I relish in being a part of the body, worshiping, giving, serving, being present with this text is too heavy and there's too high stakes for you to be able to read this and say, oh, that's not a big deal. That's just something people do on Sundays every once in a while. A body can be destroyed. And, and this is what a doctor will tell you. I'm not a doctor, but a doctor would tell you this. Your body could be destroyed through neglect or through reckless behavior. Now, neglect may take a while longer to destroy it, may not as noticeably destroy it but it'll eventually have the same results. Paul is telling the church members that as they make up the temple of God, the body of Christ, how each member lives as a functioning member of the body of Christ has an effect on the health of the overall body. The body of Christ, health is contingent on how well you treat it. Me? Me. That I contribute to the health of the body. Not just my physical body, the body of Christ. Treating it poorly or disrespectfully may bring judgment on ourselves. Now, let me be very clear. These are not my words. They're not a preacher's words. These are Paul's words. These are God's words from concerning the body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ is God's dwelling place. Again, we know that. The New Testament makes it very clear that, that, is not, that God does not dwell based on uh, the, the type of building or the certain location. It's about people, isn't it? What, what's that famous verse that Jesus, that we all learned from years and years ago, Jesus said, when he, Jesus defined the, lo, the new era like this, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, again, 
Of course, he's in in us individually, but what is Jesus defining here? He's defining the local church. He's defining the new and better temple. He's defining this new movement that where two or three are gathered together in my name. He says, hey, that's my body. That's my dwelling place. That's the temple. So we are the temple of God. As in the bodies of believers gathered officially to worship and serve the Lord. But the health of this body, the condition of this body, the glory of this body, contrary to the old temple, the glory of this temple is based on how healthy and united the bodies are which make it up. Religion loves to deflect our responsibilities individuals to the whole by distracting us with material, unspiritual things. But here's the thing, even in the Old Testament, there were clear signs that just keeping the lights on and keeping the gold polished was not enough. I mean, listen, there was never a day in the Old Testament where the temple was low on money. It was made of gold. They always had flush bank accounts. There were times when the temple got a little bit run down and they thought, hey, well, we got to clean this place up because pagan kings let it run, let it go, let it go to, 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 to worse for wear. But when it was cleaned up and restored, over time, it became clear to Israel, and the prophets made this very clear. The prophets said, said you stand out in front of the temple and you, you boast about how great it looks. But over time, they realized that the issue wasn't the dilapidation of the facility, but it was the attachment and the degradation of the community. Because even in the old days, where God's, tent, God's spirit dwelled in the holy place regardless of what was going on, even then it was about the body of people that were communicating and connecting with the Lord. It was about God desiring to see a people come to him called by his name. But it's clear when we get to the New Testament age, there's no template for facilities. We don't read a single thing in the New Testament about church buildings. We read about they met in houses, they met in fields, they met underground, they met in repurposed synagogues, but we never read a thing about how the building's supposed to look because that's not the point. The church in the New Testament is never referred to in terms of buildings, but always in terms of bodies. Bodies, as in your body and my body and his body. So I make that big deal because when Paul says in verse 16, do you not know that y'all are the temple of God, that the spirit of God dwells in y'all's presence? That should, that's a big deal. Because we're the people of God gathered together under a roof, in a field, somewhere in between, whatever it looks like, where we gather together, where there is an official community of believers who call each other church members or church family. That is the dwelling place of God on par with what we read about in the Old Testament, on par with what we read about when they gathered under Solomon's rule and reign. It's a pretty big deal. I think, I think you agree. Some churches obsess over aesthetics and the beauty, but, but no place in the New Testament is there an emphasis on, on, on that sort of thing, but there is an emphasis on how each member manages their own relationship with Jesus and how they tend to their relationships with their brother and sister in Christ. Now, one last word on this and we'll move on. Remember how Jesus and the Pharisees clashed about how they understood the temple. And and we'll talk about this on Sunday night in our small group, but here's just a taste of it. When Jesus and the Pharisees had their final showdown 
in, on the temple mount. Remember these words that Jesus gave them? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. He said, y'all, y'all, I know you got this beautiful facility here. Man, it's awesome and it's made of gold. I mean, how can it not be? But you're all just, you're all just kind of your own little person in your own little corner, but there's no community here. There's no, there's no body here. There's no... There's no life here. He says, he says, you blind Pharisee, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. And, and he's not talking about that the outside might be shiny. He's talking about the reputation. That if the, the true issue is, hey, is the reputation a, 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 that, that the, this is the body of Christ, the body of the Lord, where his spirit is dwelling, where his people are growing, that's what matters. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. I mean, is there a worse insult? Outwardly you appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. Now, I would never say that to any of y'all, but man, Jesus said that to some of his best friends. Well, they used to be the best friends. They killed him after this. <coughs> full of dead people's bones. Now, Jesus was referring to them, the religious people. It's being dead and, and being unclean. And of course, if you're dead, it doesn't really matter if you're unclean, but you know, he was pulling punches. So you also outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now I show you all this because of course this isn't y'all and this isn't any, any godly, you know, fearing group of Christians, but this is what any of us could be. And God forbid any local assembly of God's people ever look like this. But the fact that the Bible warns us about this means that it possibly could be if we don't pay attention to what God is trying to do. The church is all about what's on the inside so much that there's no prescription on how superficial things should even look. It's all a means of getting people to Jesus. Otherwise, it doesn't even matter. So Paul is calling for a serious consideration of how we are playing into the well-being of the whole body and warns the Corinthians that they may all be destroyed if they neglect it. Pretty strong words from the Apostle Paul. Now there's a drastic warning, but a necessary one to bring our attention to this serious matter. Now I want to look at verse 18 through 23. He's going to go back into what we read about from chapter 1, the wise and foolish framework. Uh, and, and coming after this section, I have to believe he's talking about how some think they've got this life figured out. We all have our own ideas of what is wise and what is superior, what is the right way to live. Everyone thinks their way is the right way, their way is the higher way. But in this passage, Paul's going to make clear, the wise person is the one who invests themselves into the body of Christ and finds themselves in his body. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men or men's wisdom for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the word world of life or death or things present or things to come all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God now when he when he says all are yours he's referring to people hey we all belong to each other 
that some of us may, well, may very well be smarter than others. Some of us may very well have more experience than others. But it's impossible for us to get untethered from each other. So we better figure out how we all fit into this together. Now, again, that's not the way of nature. The way of nature is, hey, you do you and I do me, and we'll just kind of meet each other somewhere down the road. But Paul is inviting us. And again, this is not a, not a popular way to live, and this isn't even popular for most Christians to live. Paul's inviting each and every one of us to live every single day as if our actions matter not only to our goals, but to the church's goals and to the kingdom's goals. And listen, y'all may never know what any what I or anybody else does Monday through Friday or the days in between that we meet. But each of us live as if my actions today don't only honor God in my own silo, but they honor God in respect to my brother and sister. They honor God in respect to those that I worship with. They honor God in respect to those that I'm going to heaven with. That we consider each other as we do these things and, and as we do those things in honor of those around us, we realize the, the purpose and intent of every little decision, how important and how impossible it is to say, well, this doesn't matter or that doesn't matter or this isn't a big deal. Everything becomes a big deal because we all belong to Jesus and Jesus is God and, and he is the Lord and, and, and in him we have our being and we find our home. Now, arrogance is wisdom from one's own perspective. It was the root of the Corinthian problem and of the church's problem of any, in any church's problem. Uh, when believers come to the table with their own minds and not the mind of Christ. Now, as a pastor, it's my goal always to model this kind of humble wisdom. Not only that I hopefully share it and instill it with the flock, but that I handle my own knowledge and leverage it rightly. Uh, lots of people in my position can be overtaken by any semblance of power. But it's not just pastors. Uh, some local, many local churches, pastors hardly have any power. And the, pa the power is concentrated around certain other people or groups of people or individual people. Now, biblically, there should be no power struggle within the church. And the reason why Paul is talking about this right wisdom versus this wrong kind of wisdom is because there was, just, there was this power struggle in Corinth. Particularly, there were these divisions and segments of people that just didn't want to listen to anybody and, and, and especially didn't want to listen to what Paul had to say. Biblically, there should be no power struggle in the church. There is no tolerance in the Bible for any one person, boards of people, association of people to seize control in a church. Uh, the church is not a dictatorship or some tri tribune where certain chiefs rule. Uh, the church is a fellowship. And fellowship, fellowships require each fellow, right? Each individual joining together. Uh, remember, none of us are greater than the other. So we can't deem ourselves God's anointed to steer the ship better than others. However, the Bible does give instructions about how a church should be led. And it's very clear that it's through humble servant leadership, servant leadership, whether from a pastor or a group of pastors making up, depending on the makeup of the church. Now, as we transition to chapter four, and as we wrap up, chapter four is gonna teach us how we should respect the leadership that God has given the church, how disposition from the top should be mimicked on every level. And let me say this, you can sense how emotional Paul was and how invested he was 
not just to Corinth, but to all the churches that he planted. I get the sense that when he wrote about himself, it was never something he was comfortable with because he didn't want to come across as saying, hey, look at me. He was always doing it because God inspired him to do it. And he boldly preached the truth, even when it was bringing attention to himself. Um, Part of a pastor's job is often addressing their own role, shining a light on them. And I promise you, uh, I always commit to doing this with as much detachment much self-awareness, but also with as much integrity as I can. Uh, of course, I've got skin in the game, uh, but, but this is not just my game. This isn't my game. This is God's work. This is God's field. This is God's temple. So I take that very sacredly. Look at chapter four, verse one. Let a man so consider us, or let a per- anybody so consider us, he's referring to himself as a preacher, as a servant, as a leader in the church, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul says, hey, I'm speaking on behalf of me, Apollos, Peter, the apostles, the disciples, the leaders, anybody that's, that's working to build up the church. Hey, we're not doing this for ourselves, and we're definitely not doing this to try to give you different people to follow, to divide yourself further. They were trying to put the people at Corinth were trying to put Paul against Peter and Peter against Apollos so that they might have their own, you know, build up their own ideas and their own beliefs and, and really pin, you know, put other people down and, and, and segment the church further. Uh, they were doing this not to follow God, but really to lift up themselves. And, and Paul says, do not elevate us to near or above the Lord, but do hear us as God's messengers. We are stewards as in we have been given the word of God and we don't take lightly that we are messaging God's word to you. And then he's gonna lay out the litmus test for every preacher, every teacher, every messenger of God. This is how you can know if you can trust them or not. Verse verse, verse two, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found Faithful. This is a good memory verse for anybody, but he's talking again about leadership in the church. That the litmus test for how you, if you can trust someone that's leading the church is their faithfulness to God's word. From the agenda they advocate to the issues they prioritize to the subjects they cover, their merit is based on faithfulness to God's word. Paul has narrowed in on the real issue with the Corinthians. They were only picking and choosing pieces of the certain preacher's message that fit in with what they already agreed with and what made them feel better compared to others. There were different factions doing this within the church and each one were using their platform to condemn the ones across from them. Paul has already addressed this by citing that wisdom is contra- that wisdom as contrary to God's wisdom, emphasizing the work the apostles and disciples and any church leader was doing that was supposed to bring the church together. Now, he's trying to unite them and restore the church to his intended path and progress, and he's very matter-of-fact with them. He says, it is necessary that you hear the word that's being brought to you by those God has put before you so that you might grow in his desired way. And if those bringing the word to you are faithful, then what then matters to you is are you being faithful to God's word and to Christ's body? So if, if the one bringing the word to you is being faithful to the word, then the question is in your lap. 
Are you being faithful? Am I being faithful? Are we being faithful to God's word and to Christ's body, to God's church? Now, Paul does not directly tell them they were wrong with their own opinions and ideas. He just says, listen, I'm asking you to weigh out what God's word is saying to you. And if you want to bring me what you're getting from his word and talk about the differences, that's one thing. But he knew that most of them were just bringing their own opinions. <laughs> and I say this graciously, I'm not, very, I'm not old, I'm not very experienced when it comes to pastoring. I've not been doing this as long as many others have. But I've been in church long enough in different styles and different traditions and been exposed to different churches that usually the things that divide a church the things that get people fired up about are not usually scriptural convictions as much as they are personal opinions that are inspired by the scripture. Let me say that. But listen, when we put a few things in the pot and we're willing to look at them a little bit and consider being upset about them, Satan comes and stirs that pot as quick as he can. So be careful what's in the pot if it's scriptural, if it's convicted, if it's Christian convictions, or if it's just an opinion that maybe is just lingering around. Again, I'm not saying the pastor is always right. Sometimes they're very wrong. But what I am saying is God's word is always right. And where Paul is coming from is a place of sincere dedication to his job and a dogged devotion to God's word. And, and well, he's being combated by people that aren't really interested in what God has to say but really just want to talk about what they want. Uh, now, let me say this. A church that is healthy uh, to a church that is biblical like ours, to a church that is grounded and rooted like ours, where the word is being preached, where the word is heard, where from pulpit to pew there's no rift in terms of what is right and what direction come, where our direction comes from, we can never be too entrenched in God's word, God's way, and God's will. It's so important that we always reconfirm why we are doing this because it's God's word, it's God's way, and it's God's will. Because if a pastor backs off of the word, if a congregation backs away from the word, if the pastor brings his opinion, if the congregation brings in their opinion, trouble will always rise even through the smallest of cracks. So the message to us all is be faithful to God's word. You'll never go wrong. Now I can promise you, and I'm confident you can say the same to me, but I want you to know, because again, it's in my, I'm in the position where I owe this to you, that God's word is my irreplaceable, inescapable, immovable, solid rock of inspiration and influence. I, always, I will always, by God's persistent guidance, be driven by and be true to God's word. I say that with confidence. And of course, Paul was, was as confident. And listen to how matter of fact he is in verse three through five. With me, it's very small. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So they were being critical of Paul. And Paul says, hey, and he's not being flippant. He's saying, I don't really care what you say. I know that I am being true to God's word and I trust the same about you. He makes it clear that eternity will reveal that he did not budge from doing it God's way 
But here's what I think is important for us to take away. A mutual trust and integrity is required for congregations and leaders to maintain healthy relationships. As a pastor, I have to believe the people around, the people that God has called me to serve, they're coming from a place of sincerity. So I don't judge them or I'm not critical over them unless there's just some blatant disregard for God's word. Because at some point, if the integrity's there, you've got to have that healthy trust. Same way, every congregation has to share that same level of trust for those that God puts in their leadership. Again, lest there's some blatant mishandling of scripture. Now in this next passage, as we close, Paul gets a little personal with the Corinthians, a little more than he already has. There was some disdain towards Paul, maybe all the apostles, because some of the Corinthians thought they had more sense to run the church than Paul did, to put it bluntly that they were successful in their fields and they thought they should have the say-so over this field. Now, I want you to listen to what Paul says from 6 to 13, and I'll explain it to you as brief as I can. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And he's referring to the things that they had, God gave them to them. So they should be humble about what God has given to others, specifically to the pastor or to the preacher that God had given them. You, have, you are already full. And now he's acknowledging how they think they're superior than the spiritual wisdom. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign that you might reign, that we might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been and made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, and you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We, are, we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure." Being defamed, we entreat, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. Paul's referring to how the apostles had it pretty rough. Now, I don't think that he's referring to everyone in ministry being in that same category of disdain, but as someone in ministry, I can say that it's not always a, 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 it's not always a seat of honor or a seat where honor is always given. That's part of the field and that's something you accept and that's something you understand. Yet Paul says to the Corinthians, you think you are superior to the apostles because of the success that you've had. Uh, they all came to Paul and they say, hey, our way would work better. Listen, church, this is why it's so important that we all come together in humility. And this is what Paul is getting at. In verse 7, he says, what made you different from another? What do you have that was not given to you? And he's trying to remind them in their different fields and different successes that that was all because God had been good to them and blessed them in the same way he had blessed Paul and the leaders that he had given them. It takes humble dedication to God, each other into his way to avoid getting mixed up, crossed up and split up as a church. Paul is concerned about the church becoming so becoming so divided 
And so, uh, so in the infighting becoming so bad, he says, we've got to stay humble to God, to each other in his way. Listen, God's will is for every one of you, every Christian to be rooted and grounded in a local church, to be able to participate in something that will honor Christ and build up his kingdom. Whether it is a little church or a big church, soft-spoken church or a loud church, tradition or contemporary, upscaled or laid back, pastor ran, deacon ran, committee ran, nobody knows what's going on kind of place. There is a likelihood that something is not going to please you one day. That is the reality, regardless of where you go. It may be the preacher's fault. It may be the congregation's fault. Regardless of what role you play on the spectrum, there are gonna be circumstances that cause you to wonder, how do I fit in here? But nonetheless, unless we have a humble attitude where we don't allow our opinions to combat other opinions, unless we have this verse seven-like mentality where we remember that we are in this body by God and for God, by Christ and for Christ, Unless we are focused on that, we will easily find ourselves as, at odds with the whole institution. This is true when it comes to pastoring, participating on any level. We must be committed to Christ in his cause, lest our own devices convince us to depart. And believe me, they will try. Famous preacher and writer Eugene Peterson gave some of the best advice when someone says, how do you find the right church? He said, pick one and stay. I know theology. I, believe me, I know. Whew. I got a lot of bad things to say about some places. But <laughs> I know theology and I know doctrine. I know, I know, I know. But you know what he's saying there? Those reasons are rarely why pastors ever leave. And those reasons are rarely why lay people ever leave. It's usually over something silly, something carnal, something shallow. Maybe the light down the road got brighter. Paul echoes that in this passage. He says, listen, y'all, it's this us versus them, me versus you, smart versus foolish, all this stuff. He said, listen, we're building something together. We've all received from God the same way. In closing, I want you to listen to how Paul tells the Corinthians about the special relationship they could be foregoing if they undervalue their relationship to the church, especially in terms of a home church because there's no place like home. You don't have to go to a church to be a Christian, sure, but you also don't have to live with your spouse, ever talk to them or ever see them to be married. But let me know how that works if you choose that direction. Verse, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14 through 17, and we're done. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me or follow me. For this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of the ways of Christ, of my, of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere else in the church. Paul really wanted the best from Corinth. He really wants the best from every local church. He wasn't their pastor. He served them as their pastor for 18 months and then Sustenes became their leader. Timothy was going to be their leader in just a short while. 
I love, verse 15's always really meant a lot to me. You might have 10,000 instructors, but you don't have many fathers. Now, again, he's talking about as someone who literally birthed this church and built this church. But I do think this has something to say to us about those that are leaders and those that are preachers and those that are teachers in our churches. Now, I can't speak to this. I am a, I am a pastor, but I'll share my experience when I was younger. There was something special and something enduring about attending church and hearing God's word taught on and broken down by someone that I believed God put there for me. There was something always so special for me from, youngest, uh, from the youngest of age through my teenage years, going to a service that I believed was appointed and anointed, planned and prepared by God with me in mind. I really believed that it all was done by God with me in mind. The good services, the not so good services, the songs I liked, the songs I didn't like, the sermons that I didn't really understand, the ones that I really understood but didn't want to understand. I believed that all of that was by God's design with me in mind. And I believe that those that God put beside me, in front of me, across from me, they were all part of God's design too. Now, maybe that's a very narrow elementary way of looking at it, but I looked at it that way for a long, long time. And I brought that in with me as I began to pastor. I have a few preachers I listen to now, and I think a lot of them, but nothing replaces that local church pastor relationship that I had growing up. And I think if you ask any pastor, they miss that the most on this side. I never got into this business because I wanted to follow, I wanted a following or I wanted someone to admire me or love me as somebody great. I answered God's call because I believe in the value and importance of the local church, of the Bible being taught in a dynamic and practical way. My heart beats for God's people to take hold of the truth that he's revealed to us in his word. I'm fortunate and privileged to be one of the few that get to lead the church and contribute a small share to his kingdom. So my promise to you all and whomever I stand before, I will always put forth God's word with fear and reverence, passion and preparation, sincerity and conviction. I am the product of the local church and will always be its biggest fan. I will always pour out my best so that God's word might impact the most. At the end of the day, from whatever position you are called to hold, pulpit to pew. If we are all faithful, the church will be full of possibility. I can't control your faithfulness and you can't control my faithfulness, but I can believe the best about you and you can believe the best about me and you can encourage me and I can encourage you. But if I'm faithful and you're faithful, the possibility just gets higher for God to impact our lives and lives through us. I think there's something very special about that chapter because Paul pours his heart out in a way that is rare to be seen. He says, there's not many places like your home. In the same way, there's not many places like your home church. And the sacred thing about this church and any church, we are God's dwelling place. That's an exciting thing, isn't it? God never looks down and says, oh, there's not enough there. Or man, they really missed that key. Or man, he could have worked a little bit more on that point. 
God looks down at every congregation and says, there they are in my name. I can't wait to meet with them. And if they're faithful, the possibility just goes up. So I hope this encourages you. I hope it encourages all of us to reach higher, to serve more devoutly, and to believe the best about each other because we are a part of the best institution we could ever give our time and lives for and to. Because Jesus gave his life for us to be here. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for allowing us to gather here tonight. As we talk about the church, it makes it all the more special to be here and meet as the church. Thank you, Lord, for each and every one that you've brought here tonight. May you bless them, especially for being a part of this conversation. Reaffirm their faithfulness and their commitment to your church, wherever they may call home. And help us all to honor you with our lives that we might have the greatest potential in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.